Welcome to this Asia Global podcast, brought to you by the Asia Global Institute at the University of Hong Kong. I'm your host, Alejandro Reyes, the Institute's Director of Knowledge Dissemination. In our programs here in Hong Kong and online, and in the content that we produce, we focus on presenting Asian perspectives on global issues. Follow the Asia Global Institute on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and visit the Asia Global Institute website to sign up and receive our news and information, including the weekly Asia Global online journal. This podcast is part of our Meet the Author series, where we have a conversation with contributors to Asia Global online and other publications of the Institute. Joining me now from Singapore are Irene Ng, who is Associate Professor of Social Work and Director of the Social Service Research Center at National University of Singapore, NUS, and Sun Sun Lim, Professor of Communication and Technology and Head of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, SUTD. Welcome to you both. In their article on Asia Global Online, Irene and Sinsen argue that deep in the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, it's time to realize that access to digital services is as much a need as electricity and water. Exclusions from education and employment due to the existing digital divide have been exacerbated by the lockdowns caused by the unprecedented public health crisis. Irene, tell us uh, about these digital divides, even in an advanced economy such as Singapore. During the pandemic with lockdowns and shutdowns of offices and schools, people, students have had to work from home. But while we may assume that everyone has access to a device or a computer and to the internet, especially broadband services that can handle live streaming and video conferencing. This is actually not always the case. Right, yeah. Um, my research has been on poverty, inequality, and social mobility. And even before the pandemic, I have uh, made mention to how technology is an area that um, unequalizes for um, low-income individuals, both students as well as adults, because without technology in today's world, um, we won't have access to a lot of opportunities. Right? And so when the pandemic came um, in Singapore, when we had our version of our lockdown, there was really a scramble uh, when low-income children didn't have devices or internet access and the charities were working with donors to quickly get uh, devices for the children. And uh, there we, I saw that, oh, it's a time for us to really think about digital access as something that our needs no longer just based on your personal ability to pay. And that's when I explored the idea with Sansan because um, this is an area that she's very familiar with. And I've had a good working relationship with her. So we wrote this together. Yeah. Now, uh, Sun Sun, um, 
you know, it's hard enough. I think the, the, the debate over, say, whether water, it, people have the right to access to water and sanitation, that that's actually been a long running debate uh, that, that mo you know, most people think that this is the case, but it's, there's still people who say, well, you know, we, we should, uh, uh, it's not necessarily um, a sort of a human right to have access to, um, to, 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 to uh, utilities. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts in terms of, you know, whether the world is coming around to this idea that um, digital services should be considered on the same par as electricity and water? Maybe I'll answer uh, a bit more on the water aspect and then I'll ask uh, Tristan to answer about technology. Um, for me as a poverty researcher, I, we always get some um, opposing views right, when we want to, accept, um, want to advocate for uh, greater access for low income. Yeah, um, and that's why in our article we wrote about that question on deservingness. Yeah, so there's always this um, uh, question. Yeah, but no matter what, I mean, um, when we think about people as humanity, what we need for basic survival, right? Um, I think for me, I really think that these are needs, right? And, and UN is very strong in championing these needs. And yes. in the last few years, they have included digital inclusion full digital inclusion as part of those uh, things that needs, okay, besides water. Okay. And so, so there, do you have a... So, um, obviously with electricity and water, it's quite straightforward. It's either you have it or you don't. And in the case of water, you know, ideally it should be clean water. And um, in the case of electricity, then you have to think about sort of the consistency of supply, whether it's reliable and so on. In the case of digital um, access, it's rather more complex because obviously you're talking about not just uh, hardware, you're also talking about software, you're also talking about internet access. And then of course, there's the whole issue of competencies, right? And that's why the whole conversation around universal digital access is rather more cumbersome and yet no less important. Um, and obviously, in countries like Singapore, for example, where we've got the access sorted out, then it becomes an issue of equipping the less advantaged with the right skills to be able to use them in other countries where, you know, even access is an issue and even access to electricity is an issue, then we've got to take different approaches. But overall, when you look at how the world is digitalizing, and as we say in the article, so much of education, so much of employment is now very deeply intertwined with universal digital access or with digital access rather, we can't actually stop looking at digital access as something that is a luxury. It really is a fundamental need that everybody needs in order to uplift themselves. Well, what, what about the issue of the provision of the services and pricing and profits? Because this isn't a, a matter when you talk about water, whether is it right to privatize the provision of water and sanitation so that uh, companies that do provide these services can make a profit? Or should they be you know, considered a public good that should be free or, or you know, and then, and then you, of course, there's the sustainability dimension of saying, well, you know, if you, if people don't know the actual value of the water, they won't, uh, they won't know how to conserve it. The, 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 and, and so I'm wondering on, on that on that score, what are your thoughts on, uh, mm -hmm. on, on these issues? Um, well, 
I think whether we go about it by private or public provision, I think around the world there's recognition that there still needs to be heavy government intervention in such um, things such as water, that's why we call them public utilities in, in most cases, right? Even if uh, a private provider is there, the government is involved to control prices um, because water is something so basic, right? Um, so as Sansan was saying that with um, devices, technology, it gets more complicated, but I think we could um, follow the model of um, in most developed countries where we do the piped water, clean water, right, as something that the government is heavily involved in, in either provision or intervention or in terms of controlled prices. In, in, terms of, um, in terms of private sector support, we also make the argument for technology taxes. If you think about um, countries like Indonesia, Philippines, um, there are actually technology companies that are able to monetize a lot of the data from the usage by even the bottom of pyramid users. And so you're looking at bottom of pyramid users whose value is being extracted for the profits uh, of these technology companies. So the question of fairness is, uh, is raised, right? How do you then transfer some of this value that you've gotten from these people back to them? Now, um, Irene, I'm wondering if I could talk to you a bit about your research. Uh, last year, you co-authored an article um, on reducing how reducing debt improves psychological functioning and changes decision making in the poor. I, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. But also, I mean, if I think about uh, the pandemic now, I, I would, you know, one uh, danger, if you will, is that um, people will be going more and more into debt, particularly uh, the lower income uh, groups. And, 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 and that will certainly have this sort of psychological uh, dimension to it that we may not actually think about. Right, yeah. That paper actually um, was written together with my two co-authors, Alcian and Walter Pissera. Um, and um, it was very interesting because that year, the, um, it was a charity that really just relieved debt for people. And it was a a bit controversial because we don't typically think of helping people in debts because we think of this as a personal problem. Um, but with the research, we do find that debt on top of poverty has um, additional immediate psychological impact and people's cognitive ability is impact and also their uh, psychological symptoms of distress were heightened. Right, So when when the debt relief came, all these just came down. Yeah. Um, that said, a one-time debt relief can't be the solution, right? Um, yes. What we are seeing now with, um, as we continue to look at the data, that um, as people continue to be in low wages, um, their debt will pile up again. So in relation to this pandemic then, a lot of people um, becoming more psychological distressed, right? Um, as they maybe lose jobs or, or, or wages, uh, uh, salaries are not coming in, um, that definitely will have an impact on people's um, psychological functioning, people's mental bandwidth. So relief in this sense is very important. So these are the times when nations just have to come in and, and provide those um, 
unemployment insurance, you know, wage subsidies, right, to tide people over. Um, yeah, it's really in unprecedented times. Now, um, Irene, you, you, I, I can pursue, so you, you also uh, look at poverty, inequality, intergenerational mobility, youth employment, social welfare policy. These are your research interests. Now, uh, I'm mindful that Singapore just had a general election. I, I'm wondering whether, uh, you know, some of the issues that you're looking into, were, did they play uh, fairly prominent, uh, were they prominent issues uh, in the recent general election? Of course, I'm sure that the uh, government's performance in, in, in dealing with the pandemic was uh, first and foremost, uh, but, but, but what are some of the issues that you're working on that were uh, paramount in the, uh, in the election? Yeah, I think um, several of the opposition party members alluded to the inequality as a problem. In the last few years, this has been highlighted. And it's not just a Singapore problem, actually. It's globally, I think, uh, social inequalities have, have risen. And in Singapore, we have managed this um, a bit better. Uh, inequalities have decreased in the last decade, but, but not as much as um, what we would hope. And going forward, I think uh, inequality is going to be... Um, something that's very important. Interesting. Now, um, Sun Sun, I, I, you have a new book out uh, called Transcendent Parenting, Raising Children in the Digital Age, uh, published by Oxford University Press. Um, what do you mean by transcendent parenting? And uh, what are some of the issues that you took up in that book? Right. Um, so this was actually a combination of all my years of work of looking at families and how they domesticate technology. And what I noticed was in the last uh, five to 10 years, we were seeing the intensification of mobile communication in families. And it was changing the way families were connecting with each other. And um, clearly that helped to, in some ways, sort of redefine how parents parents. And it also changed the dynamics of the supervision that parents would try to exercise over their kids. So when I say transcendent parenting, I talk about how parents actually use technology to transcend the physical distance between themselves and their kids. So they're constantly offering some kind of parental supervision, even if their kids are away in school or at enrichment class or out for a party. Um, I also talk about how parents then have to transcend both the online social interaction spaces that their kids are in, as well as their offline spaces and then I also talk about how because of the connectivity that parents always en enjoy with their kids that the whole issue of parenting then becomes timeless so um, they have to transcend the whole timelessness of parenting and the entire relentlessness of it all um, relating to COVID-19, what was fascinating was that obviously you were finding parents suddenly physically uh, with their kids all the time, but that they were having to parents very constantly using all of these technology platforms that their kids were using to um, educate themselves or rather to, to access educational services. So that brought in a whole different um, angle altogether. Interesting. Now, uh, what, what do you see then as the possible permanent effect or impact of the pandemic on the digital parenting challenge, if you will. Uh, is there, are we going to see anything that's, that's changed because of the pandemic that will be lasting or that we'll have to uh, look into uh, you know, for much, for much more in depth? 
So in my book, I actually talk about how there is a growing turn towards using technological platforms for parents to communicate with teachers and with schools. And to some extent, that actually um, relieves parents' concerns that they can't, you know, they be they can't be at work and helping their kids with their schoolwork. But I also mentioned in my book how that has potential downsides because the overwhelming you know, metrics that are being captured about the child's performance in school is then eyeballed by the parents and it sometimes creates situations of tension or mistrust between parent and child. My um, concern is that with the COVID-19 and the intensified use of technology, more and more parents are actually now aware of these kinds of platforms and they may want to um, demand greater usage of these platforms without necessarily recognizing the overall long-term adverse implications. Thank you. Now, can I ask both of you, because of course um, you're sort of still in a kind of semi-lockdown, not a, not a full-on lockdown, and so you've been doing teaching online. Can you tell us a bit about your experiences, uh, how, how you found it, how your students have found it, uh, Irene? Yeah, um, I teach mostly um, social workers who are working. Yes. So our classes are at night and it's interesting because then their kids will be coming in and out of the screen. Right. They're trying to you know, hide away from the kids and it's at the end of a long day. Yeah. Has it been a good experience or did you find that the online teaching was not what you expected or it didn't provide the kind of teaching experience both in terms of your ability to teach as well as the learning uh, that there was a, it was lacking in, in, in effectiveness? In my experience, it was good and bad. Um, I think it was good that sometimes my social work students, they might have to be late for class because they have urgent matters to address in, at work, but with online, they can get to the class um, more easily. Um, but then, um, these social workers do uh, appreciate having uh, personal interaction and our classes are, are more interactive. So I think we lose that element of interaction and having a physical discussion, robust discussion. Because you have to wait turns to, to talk, right, over Zoom like this. Sun Sun, how has your experience been in? So I think we're quite blessed because of the you know, scarring experience of SARS. Um, every year after that, all the universities in Singapore would do something called e-learning week. So it would prepare us for the next big disaster. Well, guess what? It did happen 17 years later. And so unlike other industries, we were able to transition very quickly. So I think the delivery to the students uh, of classes was sort of um, unbroken. But the quality, you're right, um, there are certain trade-offs. And yet, we also saw among ourselves, our colleagues, you know, when we exchanged notes, we found that there were, for example, students who were a little bit more reticent in face-to-face -face settings, becoming a lot more um, engaged in the class content. And I think in some ways, the online learning um, platform caters to certain learning styles better than the face-to-face -face one, which might have, you know, issues of social, uh, social performance, uh, performance anxiety, and so on. So um, pluses and minuses for different students. Now, I, I'm mindful that, um, we, you know, we're, we're in the summer session, I suppose. I mean, like we are here at Hong Kong U. Um, what are the prospects for a return to the classroom uh, in Singapore? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, in my university, um, we have been encouraged to mostly still do online. Um, uh, but those who do want to have physical classes, we have to submit 
for and put up the reasons. Yeah. Can I add something um, again back to our article on yes. digital access, right? Um, this online learning has really um, also unearthed um, the issue of people having to connect from home where the internet connection is yes. not reliable. Yeah, so this really again highlighted how if you don't have the ability to afford right, either a good device or the internet connection, then they just shut out from this and yeah. I think that's actually an important point that some people don't think about, especially in the age where we emphasize the mobile devices. People think, oh, you can do everything with your mobile device. But in fact, when it comes to learning and in employment, certainly issues, that it's, it's still important to have um, at least a laptop or uh, a desktop computer, but then that adds the, the expense, the, the challenge. Because I've had students who had to then go and subscribe for a higher bandwidth, you know, and they might be using data previously, then they have to start subscribing. And if you can't afford it, then you just can't do it, right? So yes. then, and they say, oh, I didn't get the class because I was in and out and I couldn't afford. Yes, yes. Now, um, uh, we're going to close soon, but um, I, I wanted to ask you guys, because you, you are in two different institutions. Uh, Irene, you're at NUS, and uh, Sunsun, you're at SUTD. So I love it when there's collaboration. So t t tell me how you, I mean, how did you guys get together in terms of, because this is, this is great to have um, two institutions collaborating and uh, working together and, you know, uh, coming together to do an article. Uh well, um, it, it was actually, you know, remarkably fortuitous timing. Um, I was uh, previously a nominated member of parliament. And at that yes. time, you know, because of the COVID-19 um, re revealing a lot of cracks in the system, one of the issues that was coming up was obviously children from less advantaged homes um, not being able to access the home-based learning as effectively as they could. And so um, one of my parliamentary colleagues was raising a motion to speak about this very issue. And because of the research that I had done previously, invited me to join in. And then Irene connected me with, um, contacted me about writing something. And uh, so not only did we write the article, we also, um, I also shared our views and insights in Parliament in, in a speech on the motion. Great. And, and Irene, how are you, uh, you know, looking forward? Are you guys uh, going to do more collaboration on this issue? Or? We don't know. It was, so after that article, that we wrote one article that was more to the Singapore audience. And yes. I was like, we have to write another one for the international audience. Of course, right? Because the issue is not just... Yes. Sometimes it's great to work with, so... I'd be happy to collaborate. Yeah. Well, I think that's what education is all about these days, right? Uh, collaboration. So it would be very good. And we're very happy to um, collaborate with you guys in, uh, in bringing your, um, your insights uh, to our audience. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it, wonderful to have you join us from, uh, from Singapore. And uh, we really hope um, uh, to do uh, more work with you uh, in the future. I, I commend to our viewers uh, Irene and Sunsun's article, which is available on Asia Global Online. Please subscribe to Asia Global Online, to the Asia Global Institute, to get information from the Institute. Please subscribe to our social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube. And uh, thank you very much for joining us, Irene and Sunsun, and thank you very much to our viewers. Thank you for this opportunity.
Yeah, thank you for giving me a chance to catch up Irene too. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> we we we're very happy to bring you guys together. Process <laughs> was not no face to face. Yes, no, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you. Have a nice week ahead. Bye. Bye.